At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Right into it. Our subject for this episode is little known, but if you're like me, once we're through, he'll be on your troubled mind as much as Bundy, Ramirez, or BTK. So, crack a crow, and let's get to know maybe the only serial killer who was confronted and taken down by one of their would-be victims. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode S2E6, Missoula Mahler. Missoula, Montana, February 5th, 1974. Siobhan McGinnis, a friendly, lively, beautiful five-year-old girl, is playing at a friend's house when, at around 7 p.m., her mother calls and asks that she return home. Siobhan is escorted halfway, then left to run the dark neighborhood alone to complete the last couple blocks herself and exercise in independence. She won't be seen alive again, by a friendly face at least. Two days after her disappearance, a county road supervisor discovers Siobhan ten miles outside of Missoula, beside a county road that runs parallel to the interstate. She lies face down in the snow, her purple corduroy coat signaling her presence beneath a fresh dusting of white powder. Investigators rush to the scene and immediately take to the task of trampling it. A trail of blood leading into the culvert, then back out to where the small girl lies, leads them to initially believe she'd been dragged out of the ditch by dogs or coyotes. The tiny body is wrapped up and, get your what-the-fuck face ready, stowed in the luggage compartment of a Greyhound bus to be immediately transported for a thorough autopsy. An examination of the murdered five-year-old girl finds that she's been beaten about the head, stabbed twice, and sexually assaulted. 
The theory that animals are dragged her from the ditch is disproven when no bite or scratch marks are found. A new, more disturbing and likely correct theory forms. Siobhan was alive when dumped and had dragged herself into the ditch for safety before dragging herself back out to the road in the hopes of being discovered by a passerby where she soon gave up, succumbing to her injuries, exhaustion, and the elements. It's deduced that she survived between 8 and 12 hours after having been discarded by the road like trash. This murder will go unsolved. It's cold to this day. A green Cadillac with New York plates was observed in the area around the time this atrocity occurred, but the tip yields nothing. I have a reason for apprising you of this horror that occurred in early 1974. A little over two months later, another unmentionable crime, except here, of course, occurred in close proximity to where Siobhan McGinnis was stolen, used up, and thrown away. And this, our first confirmed introduction to the Mahler's handiwork, would send Missoula, Montana into a frenzy of gun-buying, door-locking, and eye-cocking. April 11th, 1974, the day before Good Friday. Donna Pounds, a homemaker, mother, and wife, is out for a ride with her friend, an Avon lady. She's providing companionship and enjoying some time out of the house as the monthly deliveries are made. She returns to what should be an empty house at around 1.30 p.m. Her youngest daughter's in school, and her eldest is at work. Her son's in the army, though he still has a bedroom available, just the way he left it. Harvey Pounds, her husband, won't be home until just before 6 p.m. He works downtown as a salesman in a men's clothing store. Harvey is deeply religious, as is his wife. They studied religion together in Calgary, Alberta, before heading south to Missoula. Harvey wasn't just religious, he was a fanatic, one of those who isn't shy about lecturing at any given opportunity, from the beer in your hand to the smoke in your mouth. A fun guy at parties, no doubt. In his spare time, Harvey serves the Baptist Church's deacon and hosts a local Christian radio program, of which has been whipping its listeners into a frenzy following the murder of little Siobhan McGinnis, pointing to this act as a harbinger of Satan's impending reach into the community from the big cities. He's soon going to have more than enough personal proof to back up this claim. One of Beelzebub's minions is currently crouched in his home, as Harvey's wife of 22 years returns unaware. Donna Pounds is met by an intruder as she turns from closing the front door behind her. The young man, who was familiar to her, wears heavy, amber-colored latex gloves and is holding Harvey's Luger, a gun that was kept in a hidden cabinet of the master bedroom. Donna's son had at some point given up the location of the weapon to a friend, a friend who turned out to be a budding sadistic serial killer who was hell-bent on cutting his teeth before the age of 19. He's currently 18 and a half, and about to secure himself an early birthday gift. Donna is forced into her bedroom where she's bound with clothesline that has been affixed to the bed in anticipation of her return. The rope is wrapped around the frame then attached to the bedposts where half-hitched knots lay in loose loops waiting to be tightened about wrists and ankles. The intruder fires a warning shot into the corner of the room, likely in reaction to some resistance, and then ties Donna to the bed where he cuts off her clothing with a knife and then rapes her. The intruder then freezes victim's legs, marches her naked from the waist down to the cold, unfinished basement, forces her to kneel under the stairs, ties her ankles back up, tapes her mouth, then, after God knows what, maybe a little light conversation, 
unloads the remaining five rounds in the back of her head, causing the body to tip forward, then come to rest in a most unflattering position. Donna Pounds, who is gone from the world, mercifully can't feel what her killer does next. He shoves the gun into her, where he leaves it. A message that confirms the act as having been committed by a remorseless monster. When Harvey Pounds arrives home, just before 6 p.m., his 12-year-old daughter is watching television with a friend. He asks where her mother is, to which the young girl looks up unconcerned and shares that she hasn't seen her. But there are ropes all over the place for some reason. Puzzled, Harvey begins to investigate and is alarmed to find clothesline wrapped around the beds of his daughters. He goes from room to room, gaping at the discovery of more rope around the toilet in the bathroom and across the linoleum where it hangs limply and affixed to the doorknob. He rushes past his son's room where the only thing in a place is a guitar that has been moved after maybe being strummed by a bored killer in queue, and finally stands perplexed before his own bed, of which is surrounded by the torn clothing of his wife. He prickles in terror at the sight of his luger's empty holster and a feminine pad that has been carelessly tossed onto the floor. Harvey ushers his daughter and friend out of the house, then takes a deep breath and heads down to the basement, where his worst fear is not only realized, it's inflated by a factor of at least 666. First, the murder of a five-year-old girl, and now, a little over two months later, the heinous dispatch of Donna Pounds, a minister's wife. Many exaggerate. Doors locked, eyes cocked, in Missoula. Gun sales spike, rumors swirl. Satanism, devil worship. Police were soon run ragged, chasing down ridiculous leads. Phantom cloaked men peering out of the woods, looking to snatch virgins for sacrifice from lover's lane. Neighbors eyeballing each other's activities with suspicion, calling in bad feelings, and the sense of something not being quite right. One woman was convinced the man next door was sacrificing dogs at night in his yard. Authorities discover a hunter who had draped the skins of some coyotes over the fence to cure. It's hysteria. Harvey Pounds fans the flames of panic as much as he can manage at his church and on the amateur radio waves, but this only serves to confirm him as the number one suspect in the minds of investigators. It doesn't help that Pounds is rumored to have been courting another woman and is generally considered to be a bit of a loon. Another suspect surfaces when it's learned that a young man had been spotted in the area around the estimated time of Donna Pounds' murder. His name is Wayne Nance an 18-year-old high school senior who had taken the day off to allegedly look for materials to make a tomahawk for a school project and had found himself basically in the backyard of a home where a man had entered and made himself quite comfortable, finding a hidden gun and taking his sweet time to prepare multiple snares. Wayne Nance, who we'll get to know in a minute, and Harvey Pounds are each pulled before a grand jury, but in the end, the evidence simply isn't there. They both pass polygraphs. Many believe that the husband has gotten away with murder, but authorities are extremely suspicious of Nance, who had stained underwear in his dresser drawer that was found to contain human blood, but had been washed too thoroughly for any other identification at the time. Every investigator who speaks to Nance feels their hackles raise. Interviews with classmates yield disturbing insights. Wayne had apparently spoke often about wanting to kill before the age of 19. He was an outcast, known to roam the halls with a phony, shrunken head swinging from a rope about his neck. Just after the murder of Donna Pounds, Wayne had carved a pentagram into his arm, inverted to represent the goat of lust, dousing the Holy Trinity below it. 
Wayne, with his red hair, cold eyes, and liver lips, was feared by his classmates. He was intelligent and abnormally strong. He carried a large knife with him at all times and constantly spoke about his ties to the dark side. One classmate claimed to have found Wayne looking at a window in an empty classroom the day after the Pound's murder. When asked what he was doing, Wayne allegedly responded, quote, It's been done. The student thought Nance was talking about the self-inflicted wound the weirdo was tracing with a finger as he invoked a thousand-yard stare, but most who knew Nance personally were quite sure that the odd young man with the weapon collection and fascination with evil had fulfilled his dream. He'd stepped in league with the devil, and no doubt, after a looting indictment, felt he was protected by the dark side. He surely sent a nod to the earth when a pubic hair retrieved from the crime scene, one of the only solid pieces of evidence, is somehow lost by authorities. Maybe accidentally tossed after being placed in a pack of smokes for safekeeping or something. <laughs> the case goes cold. Harvey pounds rails away into an early grave and Wayne Nance heads off to join the Navy. By the time Wayne's kicked up for drug use and returns to Missoula, now in his early 20s, the community has moved on from the murders of 1974. Soon they'll find their morning papers full of print indicating that a dark force is working its will about them once again. But before we head there, let's duck into Nance's past for a bit and get to know from where these cold winds blow. Wayne Nathan Nance arrived at planet Earth on October 18, 1955, one of four children, two boys and two girls, born to George and Charlene Nance. George was a long-haul trucker and Charlene was a waitress. The two raised their brood in a quaint little trailer park of Missoula, Montana, where by grade two, their eldest boy, Wayne, began showing signs of the murderous sadist he'd eventually become. One of many examples occurred on a Missoula school bus in the early 60s. A little girl drops her glasses. Across from her sits seven-year-old Wayne Nance. He's familiar with the girl. She's the daughter of a man named Elmer who runs the trailer park he lives in. Wayne picks up the glasses and makes as if to hand them back to the girl, but just as she's about to grab them, they're snapped in half, then placed neatly in her trembling palm. The girl tells her father, who in turn confronts George Nance about his son's behavior. George won't hear it. It's Elmer's daughters who have been picking on his Wayne as he sees it, teasing the boy for living in a park their daddy owns. Elmer retreats, as most do from George Nance. He's a imposing figure, usually with a drink in one hand and a smoke in the other, if his hands aren't busy guiding a rig cross-country. On a cold winter afternoon, not long past this run-in, Elmer is cleaning snow around his park, the name of which was Elmar Trailer Park, an amalgamation of he and his wife Marge's names. Clever when he spots Wayne walking towards the park's incinerator, which is currently ablaze with garbage and has been left with its hatch open so a fresh litter of stray kittens can lay on it and warm themselves for a spell. Elmer observes from a distance as the young man, now eight or nine years old, approaches the kittens, looks them over for a moment, then slams the door shut, sending them screaming into the blaze. Elmer is struck dumb, maybe dependent upon his snow shovel to keep him propped upright as the boy heads off on his merry way. Nance is your typical bully. He plays too hard, jokes too seriously, and thrives off of the discomfort of others. His father sticks up for him the whole way, intimidating teachers, fellow parents, even the janitor-slash-bus driver who tries to kick Wayne off his route, only to be met with palms to the sky when he reports to the principal that the Nance family is resistant to his attempt at reprimand for a fight on the bus. 
Thirteen-year-old Wayne Nance sees the janitor slash bus driver in the hallway the day after this failed request and says to the man, quote, My dad says you gotta get them before they get you. Wayne then struts away, yelling back over his shoulder to the perplexed custodian, quote, That's my motto. <laughs> it's not long after this incident when Wayne's father is arrested after committing a wild and poorly planned robbery. December 14, 1968. George Nance is in need of a quick cash infusion with the holidays approaching. He spends the day drinking, then at around 9 p.m., walks into a local super save store as the manager is counting up monies in preparation for an armored truck pickup. George, who's most likely aware that this is a heavy cash time for the store, approaches the clerk with a gun raised and announces that this is a robbery. He then takes the terrified man to the back where he tapes him up and pistol whips him to near unconsciousness. George then stumbles to the front exit where he picks up a salt block and smashes it through a window for some reason. He does this just as the armored truck arrives. The driver is armed, obviously, and is as good as having a cop out front in George's pickled mind, so he heads back into the store where he hides in the back with the clerk. The police are summoned and soon arrive along with fire department and medics. It's a big deal. This is a quiet area. Everyone wants to see what's up. Town folk look on as the hostage situation unfolds. George is forced to surrender after a few hours of negotiation. He's given five years for the bungling of this high-potential robbery, what with the armored car arriving with God knows how much in its cab. Damn waste. <laughs> Wayne's mother, Charlene, holds down the Ford as best she can by working multiple local waitressing jobs. Wayne, who's well aware that his name is now synonymous with aggression and violence, effortlessly melts into the bad boy mold of which his father has just galvanized and continues getting in fights and terrorizing everyone and everything he crosses, culminating in the death of Donna Pounds in his senior year. And just previous to this, maybe the murder of Siobhan McGinnis, who many, including Siobhan's mother, still believe was a victim of the Mahler, even though DNA cleared him much later on. This is just a rumor, but apparently Wayne had a friend that lived outside of Missoula who owned a green Cadillac like the one spotted near where Siobhan's body was eventually discovered. A disturbing revelation, if true, but a claim that was never taken seriously, substantiated, or followed up on, apparently. At the age of 24, Wayne returns home from his stint in the Navy and is living back with his parents, working nights as a bouncer at a local watering hole named The Cabin, and days as a warehouse-slash-delivery worker at a furniture company named Conlin's. His father, who only ended up serving a year for the armed robbery, is back to long-haul trucking and has returned from days on the road on April 4, 1980. The house is deserted and George immediately becomes annoyed, knowing that because it's late afternoon, his wife should be home. That is, unless she's picked up a shift at the aforementioned cabin, of which he's forbid Charlene to accept shifts, as the owner allows his employees to drink and promotes flirtation with a rough crowd of rednecks who frequent the establishment. George barrels his pickup truck into the cabin's lot and enters the bar fuming. Charlene exits soon after, arguing over her shoulder at an irate Mr. Nance before jumping into her 76 Chrysler Cordoba and spinning gravel up into his shins. She's drunk. George attempts pursuit but can't even come close to reaching her speed. Instead, he heads home where he'll wait it out, as is the usual routine. Charlene, meanwhile, races down nearby Deer Creek Road, recklessly taking corners in her luxury vehicle with the big nose and the narrow back end. 
She flies over a bridge and begins heading into Hellgate Canyon, likely screaming at her life's frustration as she races through the woods. It's later rumored that Charlene had a man on the side who lived out this way, but even if she did, it turns out she wasn't planning on seeking refuge with him on this day. The anti-joy ride was initiated as a way to escape and weigh her options, and she soon makes a snap decision. Rather than taking the next turn, Charlene slams her vehicle into a ponderosa pine. She's dead instantly. Investigators find no evidence that she attempted to slow before crashing. It's more likely, judging by the wreckage, that she sped up. This same year, 1980, as Wayne and his father pick up the pieces and move into George's recently deceased father's ranch-style home that sits within shouting distance of the cabin bar, authorities are picking up some pieces of their own. A skeleton is discovered along the highway, not far from where a five-year-old girl had been left for dead years previous. The bones had been spotted by a slow-moving train of which, like the fairly constant highway traffic, had kept the corpse serenaded with the drone of its engines as it quietly decomposed through the season. The skeleton belonged to a young lady, 14 years old at the time of death. She'd been thrown like trash from the road and rolled down an embankment, coming to rest up against a chain-link fence that ran along the tracks. Investigators must have found the scene to be reminiscent of an ambitious Halloween lawn display. The strawberry blonde hair the victim had detached from the skull, having become caught in the fence on impact, and over time the flesh had melted away, leaving the impression that a wig had once been affixed to said skull. A dress is wrapped up around the neck. No underwear or shoes are found. A pair of earrings are recovered from the grass, having fallen from the lobes as they disintegrated. That's fucking horrible. Who writes this shit? (laughs) The young woman is given the name Betty Beavertail by police captain Larry Weatherman. Weatherman gleans the designation from nearby Beavertail Hill. He'll doggedly pursue this case among others to come through the years, amassing a small collection of facial reconstructions on his shelf in the process. Down the road in 2009, the identity of this woman is finally uncovered. Her name was Devonna Nelson, a young runaway, thought to have possibly fallen victim to the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway, who had roamed the avenues of Washington State in the early 80s. Dental records from Devonna match Betty Beavertail, removing her as a possible victim of Ridgway, who never traveled to Montana, although I'm sure he would have loved it. Great dumping grounds in and around Missoula. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value. 
especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. April 27th, 1983. East of Missoula, somewhere in the Hellgate Canyon, a woman returns home from work and begins considering dinner options. Her husband should be home shortly as well. She switches on a light and is grabbed from behind. A gloved hand covers her mouth. She turns and yells out but falls silent as she takes in the knife-wielding intruder who has gained access to her town home via the second-floor balcony. As she's being forced upstairs to her bedroom, the front door opens and her husband enters. The intruder flees, ascending the stairs, then goes to the bedroom and up over the balcony. He disappears down into a riverbank. Years later, a hand-drawn map of the couple's home, complete with footprints leading to the river, indicating the escape route, is discovered in the home of Wayne Nance. It was one of many blueprints the Mahler had taken to paper from memory after having been in said homes delivering furniture. Christmas Eve, 1984. A wildlife photographer comes across a bent and naked leg sticking out of the ground like a question mark. Authorities pitch a tent over the gruesome discovery and begin to thaw the frozen ground with a propane heater while they head home and attempt to enjoy the Christmas season with their families. Eventually, the ground relaxes its clutch, and the grave, which is only two feet deep, reveals the naked body of a young woman. She's been shot once in the back of the head and twice in the temple. She's dubbed Debbie Deer Creek, another name drawn from the topography. The woman will eventually be identified as Marcy Bachman, who was a 16-year-old runaway at the time of her disappearance. She's discovered less than five miles from Wayne Nance's home. It's later surmised that she'd run into Wayne at the cabin after hopping off a truck and following a brief relationship of which is documented somewhat in a strip of photo booth pics where the two cuddle and kiss each other, the Mahler decided to 
end things. September 9th, 1985. A hunter tracking bear comes across a skull in a dry bed of Crystal Creek, a spot within a 15-mile stretch of the Missoula area that we've been mining for gruesome tales of discovery to this point. The skull had traveled down a slope before coming to rest and being stumbled upon. The remainder of the skeleton is located higher up. It's been there for some time. Animals have strewn the bones about. It's a woman, maybe 20 years old and of Asian descent, just over 5 feet tall, probably weighing around 100 pounds in life. No clothing or personal effects are recovered. Two thirty-two slugs are present, as they were at the execution, one to the back of the head, the other through the temple. This unfortunate soul is dubbed Christy Crystal Creek and has never been identified. December 12th, 1985. Michael and Teresa Shook are in their Revalley, Montana home, winding down for the evening. Their oldest child, Matt, is in bed already. It's 8.30 and he has a long day of grade two ahead of him. His younger siblings, four-year-old Luke and two-year-old Megan, are still up and assisting their mom as she prepares them places Christmas cookies in the oven. Her husband Michael is stretched out on their new sofa, of which has been delivered by a couple fellas from Conlon's Furniture. One of these fellas, as you could probably guess, was Wayne Nance, who soon startles the family by ringing the doorbell just before 9 p.m. Young Luke rushes to the door and opens it excitedly. He welcomes in a wild-eyed man. Wayne Nance enters, his eyes bugging out like the maniac he is. The ridiculous intrusion gets even more odd when Wayne announces, quote, I'm Conan the Barbarian. Missoula's Mahler then fires a warning shot that hits Teresa in the leg, sending everyone into a panic. The phone rings, and incredibly, Teresa calmly answers it. It's a friend confirming that her husband will be by in the morning to drop their son off to play and be watched. Teresa agrees, then quickly ends the call. Nance gets to work and attacks the biggest threat. He hits Michael Shook over the head with a blunt object, then ties him up before slipping a knife into the helpless man's chest in front of his horrified family. It's a fatal wound. Nance then escorts four-year-old Luke to his room, where he's told to stay put with his older brother. The mauler then places two-year-old Megan in her crib that sits next to her parents' bed, and then secures her mother to the bedpost in the same fashion as Donna Pounds in the beginning of this horrible episode. He commits rape, then ends Teresa Shook's life by stabbing her in the chest, in front of her daughter, of course. Heinous. Nance then takes the task of removing the bullet from Teresa's leg. He eventually gives up on this, but not before butchering the limb in the process. The house is then ransacked. The mauler likely orders the children to stay quiet if they aren't already frozen with fear. A couple of hours after his arrival, Nance is ready to leave. He collects some magazines for kindling and stuffs them between some bar stools that have been stored beneath the stairwell in the living room. He then lights a fire and exits the home, just after midnight. The children smell smoke, but are too terrified to leave their rooms. The bar stools snuff out, but smolder. The noxious fumes from the charred cushions waft heavily through the house and eventually knock the kids out. Wayne Nance heads home, content in knowing that the witnesses will be taken care of by the fire. Ironically, one of the streets he travels during his relaxed getaway is named Sleeping Child Road. The next morning, the Shooks are discovered by their friend who was to drop his son off to be babysat. He pulls the children from the smoky home. The boys recover quickly, but two-year-old Megan is in critical condition for some time before bouncing back. 
In the crib where she succumbed to the smoke, investigators somberly take in the tiny girl's clean form that's imprinted on the mattress, surrounded by soot. The 911 call from the family friend conveys the belief that a fire took the parents down as they tried to save their children. It hadn't even registered in his mind that the two adults were bound and beaten. The scene was horrible enough as he initially perceived it. Conlin's furniture warehouse was separated by two completely different sections. One side was the showroom floor, constantly patrolled by salespeople and management, many of them women. The other side was the shipping and receiving portion, mostly populated by grungy-looking men, hauling orders out to trucks and organizing stock. Wayne Nance, at 30 years old, was now one of the more senior laborers, and even though he only made four bucks an hour like the rest of the men in the back, he behaved as though he were a supervisor, intimidating everyone by walking around shirtless at times, displaying his tattoos that consisted of a spider, a snake, a scythe, a dragon wrapped around his shoulder, you know the type. He threw together rudimentary workouts constantly in the back, doing chin-ups from beams or using mattresses as punching bags. He cycled between being over-the-top helpful and impossibly stubborn. Those who worked with Wayne recalled him being touchy and unpredictable. He was friendly, but in an intrusive way. He'd ask personal questions, making chit-chat feel like an interrogation. To customers, Nance was known to say some pretty inappropriate things. In one instance, while moving a little girl's dresser to make space, he commented, quote, Watch the drawers, wouldn't want those little panties falling out. Quote, Shit like that but uh, got away with it as he came off as a well-meaning guy, just a little rough around the edges. He was obsessed with his manager, Chris Wells, who was a master at handling the finicky yet hard-working Nance. He had a photo of her in his wallet that he'd taken covertly. In Wayne's personal effects that were later routed through by investigators, multiple candid shots of the woman were uncovered, from pictures of her talking to customers to scenes where she quietly stayed her lunch. On the back of these photos were messages, most of which read like this, quote, Chris Zimmerman Wells, I love you. But one said, and this is my favorite, quote, Chris, I want you to live with me and my lazy boy, end quote. <laughs> A true romantic. Ah, the poetry of furniture delivery men. Me and my lazy boy. <laughs> Wayne hid his love. Chris was married, so he never went too far, except for the time he broke into her home and smeared blood on her wedding dress, a symbolic act discovered years after the Mahler's demise. Wayne made as if he were a protector of the ladies at work, acting as Conlin's security force, once reporting a peephole he'd found that had been drilled from up in the ceiling of the warehouse side and looked down into the sales side's woman's washroom. This hole had likely been Wayne's doing in the first place, 
It's thought that he feared it was about to be discovered, so he got ahead of the scandal. The Missoula Mahler worked among those at Conlon's Furniture for years. There were certainly indications that Wayne was a little off, but a lot of men in the early 80s were. Uh, fucking ridiculous characters. Cut-off jeans, headbands, eye rocks, mustaches, rampant, alcoholism and outright male chauvinism. What a time to be a dude. Not like this goddamn cockblock villa we live in today. <laughs> Just joking. I'm kidding. It's not a cockblock villa. We're just in the age of the eggshell. Nothing really wrong with that. It needed to happen. Just gotta, you know, watch your step. Chris's husband, Doug Wells, didn't like the way Wayne Nance was with his wife. When Chris had told Doug she was going to ask Wayne to dance while out socializing at the cabin bar, Doug had told her he didn't think it was a good idea to lead on a guy like Wayne. Chris ignored this, thinking Doug was being silly. But the next day at work, Wayne seemed different to her. He behaved as though they were dating now, giving her a card and a gift. Chris managed to manage Wayne by being curt and professional with him, and he soon cooled off, but the seed had been planted. In Nance's mind, the two were in love, and Chris only needed to be free from Doug to accept that. September 6th, 1986. Doug and Chris Wells have been out with friends, barbecuing, having a couple of drinks, and as the two were avid hunters, zeroing in their rifles in anticipation of antelope season. They return home around midnight and notice a pickup truck parked along their property line. Doug heads to the basement where he stores the guns. Chris heads up to get ready for bed. The presence of the pickup bothers Doug, so he decides to investigate. He grabs a flashlight and walks halfway to the truck. A figure sits slumped in the driver's seat. Doug shines his light on the man for a moment, then decides to leave him be. Probably just sleeping one off, he thinks. He heads back in, but is soon too bothered to let it go. He has a fishing boat on a trailer under the deck, which would be simple for a truck like that to back up to and haul away. He heads back outside to shoo the man, but to his surprise, the truck is already gone. Relieved, Doug heads back in, where he soon finds yet another reason to head back out. It's garbage night, he realizes, so he takes to filling his bins, then rolling them outside, through his garage. Doug spots something unusual beside his home as he heads back from the curb. He stiffens as he realizes it to be the shape of a man, hiding in his bushes. Who's there? Doug shouts. The figure elongates immediately in response, and a voice calls out. It's Wayne, from Conlins. Doug's confused. He asks what Wayne's doing in his bushes. Wayne claims that he was driving by when he saw something or someone moving suspiciously about the house and decided to come investigate. This rings true to Doug as he's just been concerned about the pickup truck, so he believes Wayne. Wayne suggests that Doug get a flashlight so they can look around. A good idea. Doug heads back into the house, through the garage, and just as he crosses the threshold, is smashed over the back of the head with a club. Doug's head is split open, and he stumbles back into his home where Wayne jumps on his back and beats on him. The two wrestle. Doug's hurt, but game is hell. The two men smash through drywall, tumble over furniture until they come to a halt in the living room where Wayne gets the better at Doug and has him mounted. Chris, hearing the frightening commotion, rushes downstairs in her nightdress and begins screaming at the men to stop. Wayne halts out of instinct. This is his manager, after all. Not to mention his one true love. The break in the action gives the mauler time to regroup. He pulls a gun from his jacket and takes control. 
Chris, recognizing Wayne now, begins yelling at him, unfazed by the weapon. She's incredulous, asking what he's doing here. Why is he doing this? She brushes over to her husband and tends to his head wound. She scolds Wayne as she assesses the damage. Nance explains that he's, quote, done something really bad. I gotta get out of town. I know Conlon's got paid today. I know you probably have some money here. So I'm gonna get some money, and I'm gonna get out of town, unquote. Chris calms down a little. She sees that this situation is serious, but manageable. Wayne instructs her to tie Doug's hands and feet to give him better control of the room. Chris does as she's told. She asks for a bandage or something to help stop the bleeding from Doug's wound. Wayne paces, muttering to himself. He absently picks up an afghan from a chair and chucks it at the bound man's head, then begins closing the blinds. He's clearly agitated. Chris tries to calm Wayne, telling him to just take the money, take their vehicle. It's okay. Wayne's clearly torn. Most serial killers begin to spin their sick fantasies into reality as soon as they gain control, but this is different. Wayne Nance is in love with his victim, and he's malfunctioning because of this. The mauler regroups and begins making moves. He silently, almost with shame, escorts Chris to her room where he ties her ankles together and her wrists to the bed. Loosely, I should add. He wants badly to believe Chris doesn't need much restraint. Doug is forced into the basement where Nance begins to tie him to a support column, his back to it, hands bound behind him. Doug slumps and Wayne begins hammering on him with the club. This club was handmade out of wire, folded multiple times over itself, then taped. It's a nasty thing, and Doug struggles to his feet, which allows Nance to complete the binding to the post. Satisfied, the ever-warming Mahler mutters to himself as he heads back upstairs. Doug stares longingly at his rifle, which lays a few feet away on a table. He begins to work at his restraints. As Wayne tromps back upstairs, Chris halts her attempt to get free as well. The Mahler soon enters the room. Chris can see Wayne's not here. This is some kind of animal in his place. He paces, then stops and stares at her blankly, before exiting once again. Chris is terrified now, and works harder than before at getting free. There's a phone beside the bed. She's not even thinking about the loaded pistol in a nightstand. Doug is making progress towards escape when Wayne can be heard returning. The mauler enters, and again, paces. He starts talking to himself. Quote, You gotta be smart. You gotta be smart. You're smarter than they are. You're going to pull this off. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? He paces some more before muttering. I should just put this gun to my own head. The suggestion doesn't lead to a favorable result for Doug. His hopes are up when Wayne says this, but they drop like a buckshot riddled goose when the mauler produces a knife and slips it into his chest. Doug gasps. The mauler stares him cold in the eyes, then removes the eight-inch blade without a word. He cleans the blood off on Doug's pant leg, then leaves the room. He doesn't bother to close the door behind him. There's nothing of concern down here anymore. As Nance exits, Doug waits for death to carry him away, but the man doesn't show. The blade has missed his heart by a fraction of an inch. He's hurt bad, but not dying, yet. He swells with adrenaline and begins to rock himself loose from the ropes as Chris can be heard upstairs chastising Wayne for hurting her Doug. Suddenly, he's loose. He carefully unties his feet with a free hand and makes his way over to his rifle, 
Doug quietly slips a shell into the chamber. There's only time for one. Chris is in trouble. He can sense time running out for him. Doug creeps at the foot of the stairs, crouches, then kicks the wall beside him, initiating a hastily thought out yet perfect trap. Wayne, as Doug hoped, bolts to the top of the stairs when he hears the thud. He freezes, then scurries away when he sees the rifle pointed at him. But it's too late. Doug fires, and Wayne reels back. For a moment, Doug believes he's missed and moves towards more ammo, but then he hears a loud thud, followed by a holler. Wayne is screaming out, quote, Oh God, I'm a dead man! Oh God, I'm dead! I'm a dead man! End quote. Doug stumbles upstairs where he finds the main mother on all fours and raises the butt of the rifle to begin smashing him to death. Wayne lopes away, begging for mercy as he's hit over and over again with the stock. He scampers back into the bedroom where he cowers beside the bed, maybe hoping for his love to save him, but Chris begins pounding on him with a hand she's freed during this melee. Doug continues to smash Wayne. He breaks the rifle in the process. Chris is getting in his way and he has to throw her aside to get at the mauler who is reaching for his gun now. Wayne pulls and fires, but Doug manages to deflect the shot with a well-timed blow, sending the bullet out through the roof and into the night. Wayne fires again and hits Doug in the knee. The bullet travels up his leg and exits inches from his crotch. Doug swings wildly at the mauler. He knocks over a lamp, dousing the room in darkness. Wayne's gun flashes and booms out another blind bullet as the butt of the rifle connects with his arm for what's later determined to be about the 60th significant blow landed with the stock. Doug leaps for the nightstand and his pistol, his ears ringing after the gunshot, knowing he has a brief window. He flips on an overhead light and trains the gun in where he thinks his attacker should be. He's prepared to finish the mauler off, but it's already done. Wayne Nance is convulsing, his eyes pinned to the roof. He's inadvertently shot himself in the head, just below the ear, can be seen the entrance wound. Doug's glancing blow as Wayne fired caused the accidental suicide. It's later determined that Nance was dying already, as his renal artery had been severed by the bullet he'd absorbed at the top of the stairs, but still, he'd fought hard, and in the end, died hard, like God knows how many of his victims had as well. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.